Hello, and welcome to Learning by Literary Audiophiles, or Learning Be Lit AF. My name, if you don't already know, is Theoden Humphrey. I'm a high school English teacher on summer break now after finishing my 20th year in the classroom. This past year was the weirdest year I've ever had, because it feels like it never ended. And because right now, everything that can go wrong has gone wrong, and it feels like we're all trapped and waiting anxiously to see what's going to happen next. It feels like some terrible nightmare, some awful dream dredged up from the swampiest, foulest, murkiest depths of our collective unconscious, and somehow we just can't wake up out of it. In fact, it's like it's a lucid dream, but everything we try to control actually backfires, and then the situation gets worse and turns into some terrible acid trip. First there was maybe a war, then the pandemic, and then the economy, and then the riots. Then there was a wildfire burning in the hills outside my kitchen window, and the pandemic is ramping up just as we're supposed to be planning for the coming school year, and also coming up soon is the election. Who knows what else? Who knows how this will end? So, to echo that experience, and to escape for at least a little while from the constant stream of madness and horror because art imitates life and life imitates art, we're reading endless tales, stories and poems that do not have a clear ending. Today we're going to read one of the most famous of these, and the only one of the six I'm doing on this podcast that is actually a fragment, the famous unfinished poem Kubla Khan by Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Coleridge quite famously came up with this poem while he was asleep, and dreaming dreams inspired by the opium he had taken before falling asleep. He awoke with the poem perfectly planned out in his mind, and running, he said later, to about 200 to 300 lines, a specialty of Coleridge's, whose poetry often tended towards the epic. But something happened, and the poem was never finished. I'm going to argue, though, that that was intentional. I don't doubt that Coleridge could have finished the piece if he wanted to, and the fact that he didn't indicates that he didn't want to, that there was something in the fragmented, incomplete poem that seemed right to him, or at least that he couldn't make any better. And so as usual, we're going to read this with the assumption that it is written exactly as the author intended, and it has the effect the author wished, including the fact that it does not come to a conclusion, rather than think of it as a failure. I honestly think this is the best way to read literature. It may be true that certain things you find in a text were placed there unintentionally, but they are still there. Ray Bradbury named two of the main characters in his classic dystopian novel Fahrenheit 451 about a world where books are burned after two companies that made pencils, paper, and furnaces. He claimed he didn't realize what he was doing when he picked the names. Maybe not, though honestly I don't believe him. But nonetheless, it makes for an interesting discussion. Because, not to get too far into Fahrenheit in my Kublai Khan episode, but the character named for the company that made furnaces and paper was Montag, the fireman main character who burns books in the beginning of the novel. Furnaces for the paper, right? And the pencil company character is Professor Faber from the Eberhard Faber Company, which is now still around and is still known for making pencils. Uh, And Professor Faber helps Montag to learn what he's been doing and why he should stop doing it. And there is a passage in the book when Faber talks about putting his words into Montag and Montag just taking them in and sitting with them for a while until they become a part of him. And then there's another passage where Montag thinks about how the things he learned from Faber will will combine with what he has inside and will become, over time, a third thing, a new thing, Montag plus Faber. He thinks of it as fire and water becoming wine. But you know what makes even more sense? Paper and pencil becoming a book. So, even if Bradbury didn't realize what he was doing, he still created this interesting thought with these characters' names. Because really, that's what we are all doing all the time. Our memories are the paper, and the people we interact with are the input, are the pencil, that puts marks down on our paper memories. And over time, the story of our interactions with other humans becomes something just like a book. It fits as well with the idea I like to use of literature being a conversation between the author and the reader, just reversing the metaphor so that the book turns back into a person, turns into some form of Ray Bradbury who can sit and discuss his ideas with me whenever I read Fahrenheit 451. 
Okay, but now I'm thinking about Tom Riddle's diary in the Chamber of Secrets, so I think we should move on. Last comment. If the reader finds something the author truly didn't intend, the author's intentions don't mean that thing isn't there and isn't real and isn't important. Just as in any conversation, it's not just what is said, it's how the audience hears what is said. If I say something that offends you, then it was offensive, even if I didn't mean it to be. I don't get to take away your genuine feeling of offense just because I didn't mean to create it. And if I find a symbol that resonates with me, then it's important that it resonates with me, even if the author didn't mean it or didn't recognize it when they put it in the book. Because of all that, it's more useful to talk about what we find in literature as if the author intended all of it, because even if he or she didn't, it's still real if we actually find it. So taking away author's intent doesn't do anything but devalue what we found, where what matters is the meaning we create through the conversation. Got it? Good. Let's get to the poem. As always, I recommend having a paper or editable on-screen copy of the text in front of you as we read this. This one's pretty complicated, so a copy you can look at while you listen is a really good idea. I got mine from the ever-flowing stream of literature that is Project Gutenberg. I'll include the text and a link in the episode description. Ready? Here we go. Kubla Khan, or A Vision in a Dream, A Fragment. In Xanadu did Kubla Khan a stately pleasure dome decree, where Alf the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man, down to a sunless sea. So twice five miles of fertile ground with walls and towers were girdled round, and there were gardens bright with sinuous rills, where blossomed many an incense-bearing tree, and here were forests ancient as the hills, enfolding sunny spots of greenery. But oh, that deep romantic chasm which slanted down the green hill, athwart a cedarn cover, a savage place, as holy and enchanted as e'er beneath a waning moon was haunted by woman wailing for her demon lover. And from this chasm, with ceaseless turmoil seething, as if this earth in fast thick pants were breathing, a mighty fountain momently was forced, amid whose swift half-intermitted burst huge fragments vaulted like rebounding hail, or chaffy grain beneath a thresher's flail. And mid these dancing rocks at once and ever, it flung up momently the sacred river. Five miles, meandering with a mazy motion, through wood and dale the sacred river ran, then reached the caverns measureless to man, and sank in tumult to a lifeless ocean. And mid this tumult Kubla heard from far ancestral voices prophesying war. The shadow of the dome of pleasure floated midway on the waves, where was heard the mingled measure from the fountain and the caves. It was a miracle of rare device, a sunny pleasure dome with caves of ice. A damsel with a dulcimer in a vision once I saw. It was an Abyssinian maid, and on her dulcimer she played, Singing of Mount Abora. Could I revive within me her symphony and song? To such a deep delight twould win me, That with music loud and long I would build that dome in air, That sunny dome, those caves of ice, And all who heard should see them there, And all should cry, Beware, beware, his flashing eyes, his floating hair. Weave a circle round him thrice, and close your eyes with holy dread, for he on honeydew hath fed, and drunk the milk of paradise.
Okay, first, vocabulary. A decree is an official order issued by a legal authority. Girdled means encircled the body with or as a girdle or belt. Also, it means cut through the bark all the way around a tree or a branch, typically in order to kill it or to kill a branch to make the tree more fruitful. Sinuous means lithe and supple, having many curves and turns. A rill is a small stream or a shallow channel cut in the ground by running water. A thwart means from side to side of or across or in opposition to, counter to, to be perverse or contradictory. Cedarn is an archaic form of uh, made from or resembling the wood of a cedar tree. Waning uh, means especially of a condition or feeling decreasing in vigor, power, or extent, becoming weaker. It also means uh, like the moon wanes, turns to dark rather to a new moon rather than uh, increasing to the full, which is waxing. Intermitted means suspended or discontinued in action or practice for a time. So then it becomes intermittent. It comes and it goes. Chaffy means resembling the husks of corn or other seed separated by winnowing or threshing. It also means worthless matter or refuse, which is the chaff left over after you take out the grain. A thresher is a person or machine that separates grain from the plants by beating. Meandering, uh, used to describe a river or a road, means following a winding course, and of a person it means wandering at random. Tumult is a loud, confused noise, especially one caused by a large mass of people, confusion or disorder. A dulcimer is a musical instrument with a sounding board or box, typically trapezoidal in shape, over which strings of graduated length are stretched, played by being struck with handheld hammers. Or also, it's a musical instrument with a long, rounded body and a fing fretted fingerboard, played by bowing, plucking, and strumming. Uh, the etymology of the word is from the late 15th century from Old French dulcimer, probably from Latin dulce melos, sweet melody. So, now the background. As I mentioned at the beginning, this poem is famously the result of an opium dream that the romantic poet Samuel Taylor Coleridge had one summer day in 1798. But the fact that it is only a fragment is, equally famously, due to Coleridge being interrupted as he was writing down his fever dream, his opium dream. As he put it, quote, a person on business from Porlock broke into his thoughts, and by the time he got back to writing, the poem was gone. Here, this is what Coleridge wrote in the third person about himself and his poem, when in 1816 he finally published the poem that he had before that only read to friends, after Lord Byron persuaded him to put the fragment in print. The following fragment is here published at the request of a poet of great and deserved celebrity, which is Lord Byron, and as far as the author's own opinions are concerned, rather as a psychological curiosity than on the ground of any supposed poetic merits. In the summer of the year 1797, the author, then in ill health, had retired to a lonely farmhouse between Porlock and Linton, on the Exmoor confines of Somerset and Devonshire. In consequence of a slight indisposition, an anodyne had been prescribed. Psst! That's the opium! From the effects of which, he fell asleep in his chair at the moment that he was reading the following sentence or words of the same substance in Purchase's Pilgrimage. Here the Khan Kubla commanded a palace to be built, and a stately garden thereunto, and thus ten miles of fertile ground were enclosed with a wall. The author continued for about three hours in a profound sleep, at least of the external senses, during which time he has the most vivid confidence that he could not have composed less than from two to three hundred lines if that indeed can be called composition, in which all the images rose up before him as things, with a parallel production of the correspondent expressions without any sensation or consciousness of effort. On awaking, he appeared to himself to have a distinct recollection of the whole, and taking his pen, ink, and paper, instantly and eagerly wrote down the lines that are here preserved. At this moment, he was unfortunately called out by a person on business from Porlock, and detained by him above an hour, and on his return to his room found, to his no small surprise and mortification, that though he still retained some vague and dim recollection of the general purport of the vision, yet, 
with the exception of some eight or ten scattered lines and images, all the rest had passed away, like the images on the surface of a stream into which a stone has been cast, but, alas, without the after-restoration of the latter. Then all the charm is broken, all that phantom world so fair vanishes, and a thousand circlets spread, and each misshapes the other. Stay a while, poor youth, who scarcely darest lift up thine eyes. The stream will soon renew its smoothness, soon the visions will return. And lo, he stays, and soon the fragments dim of lovely forms come trembling back, unite, and now once more the pool becomes a mirror. From The Picture or The Lover's Resolution by Coleridge. Yet from the still surviving recollections in his mind, the author has frequently purposed to finish for himself what had been originally, as it were, given to him. And there is a Greek phrase which from Theocritus refers to the line, Fare you well, ye muses, and again fare you well, and I'll e'en sing you a sweeter song tomorrow. And then Coleridge says, But the tomorrow is yet to come. As a contrast to this vision, I have annexed a fragment of a very different character, describing with equal fidelity the dream of pain and disease. Um, for some footnotes, there can be little doubt that Coleridge should have written The Summer of 1798 instead of 1797. In an unpublished manuscript note dated November 3, 1810, he connects the retirement between Linton and Porlock and a recourse to opium with his quarrel with Charles Lloyd and consequent distress of mind. That quarrel was at its height in May 1798. He alludes to distress of mind arising from, quote, calumny and ingratitude from men who have been fostered in the bosom of my confidence. In a letter to J.P. Eslin dated May 14, 1798, and in a letter to Charles Lamb dated spring of 1798. He enlarged on his quarrel with Lloyd and quotes from Lloyd's novel of Edmund Oliver, which was published in 1798. And then the book Purchases Pilgrimage by Samuel Purchase includes the line, In Zamdu did Kublai Khan build a stately palace encompassing 16 miles of plain ground with a wall, wherein are fertile meadows, pleasant springs, delightful streams, and all sorts of beasts of chase and game, and in the midst thereof a sumptuous house of pleasure. From Purchases Pilgrimage from 1626. So that's the story. And I love this story because it gave us one of my very favorite obscure words to porlock, meaning to interrupt an artist in the midst of creation, thereby immortalizing this obnoxious jerk who interrupted Coleridge and ruined this poem. Uh, according to my professor in college, it was a tailor who was insisting that Coleridge pay his actual bill for clothes and Coleridge was famously constantly in debt. So maybe if that's actually what happened, that is. Now, the question is, what is this poem about, and why did Coleridge leave it unfinished? So the poem is in three stanzas. The first 11 lines describe the pleasure dome at Xanadu. Xanadu is a real place, the city of Shangdu, which was the location of the summer palace of Kublai Khan, who was the grandson of Genghis Khan and the ruler of the Mongolian Empire. This first stanza has a theme of enclosing or capturing natural beauty and majesty. That's, in Xanadu did Kublai Khan a stately pleasure dome decree, where Alf the sacred river ran through caverns measureless to man down to a sunless sea. So twice five miles of fertile ground with walls and towers were girdled round, and there were gardens bright with sinuous rills where blossomed many an incense-bearing tree, and here were forests ancient as the hills enfolding sunny spots of greenery. I also got to mention uh, how nice the rhyme scheme is. I'm not going to talk too much about it because it's very complicated and without the entire poem, it sort of loses its point because we don't really get to see the full pattern. But it's still impressive how well he set this up, um, that you have all of these little rhyme, like fertile ground associated with girdled round. Like it's not just a one word rhyme, it's a multi-syllabic rhyme with multiple words and they fit together well and they're, it's just impressive. Um, 
You know, in Xanadu did Kubla Khan, a stately pleasure dome decree. You've got repeated D sounds in Xanadu and dome and decree. You've got the CK sound in Kubla and Khan and also in decree. You've got similar um, vowel sounds, Xanadu, Kubla Khan. You've got a kind of reverse um, assonance there with the U and the A. It's, the whole thing is very beautifully and very impressively written. So... If this is a true story and Coleridge actually did just come up with this instantly coming out of an opium dream, then that man high was a very smart poet. Anyway, all right, so what's it about? So 10 miles of land was enclosed with walls and towers, right? Twice five miles of fertile ground. And you have forests surrounding sunny spots and the river Alf running through caverns down to a sunless sea. So you've got Things enclosed, right? The land enclosed by walls and towers, forests surrounding little sunny meadow spots, Alf going into these caverns, so it's encaptured by these caverns, and then Alf pouring into the sea. The theme goes deeper, too, with the caverns that are measureless to man, which means they cannot be surrounded or captured or defined or delineated by human knowledge. So you have opposites, right? You have the things that are enclosed by the walls and things that cannot be enclosed by knowledge of humans. Uh, and the same thing in the stately pleasure dome, which has this feeling of encapsulating, capturing everything under the dome, the idea of pleasure itself captured under this dome. Stately, right? Either dignified or grand, or meaning that it holds the very state of pleasure, the very idea and experience of it, the concept itself under this dome. There is a great beauty to this first stanza, to this description of the place. The winding, curving rills of the stream as it moves through the fertile gardens, the blossoming of many an incense-bearing tree, giving a sense of both wealth and sensual beauty, uh, the perfume, the fertility. I can't say how Coleridge would have seen Genghis or Kublai Khan, but the Khans were well known for having many wives and concubines, and that might be some of what is happening here at this pleasure dome. And that segues us perfectly into the second stanza, which starts with, but oh, that deep romantic chasm which slanted down the green hill athwart a cedarn cover, a savage place as holy and enchanted as ever as e'er beneath a waning moon was haunted by woman wailing for her demon lover. Here we really start getting into one of the other strong themes of this poem, which is contrast. We've already had some of that with the river that is both encapsulated and not, that is covered by the Khan's dome, but also vanishes into the caverns measureless to man. But everything that is encircled and girdled in the first stanza here is busting out all over, starting with a chasm that is athwart the cover of the cedar and trees, crossing it, opposing it, resisting the cover and control, refusing to be covered. This savage place so untamed, right, uncivilized, that is also holy, and holiness and religion is sort of the ultimate control and containment. Um, this is as holy as any place beneath a waning moon that is haunted by a woman wailing for her demon lover? What? Is that what makes a place holy? A woman wailing for a demon lover? Seriously? Is that like a known thing, a common occurrence, so you can use it as the measure, a place haunted by a woman wailing. You're like, oh yes, it's that holy, sure. As holy as every other place that has been haunted by a woman wailing for her demon lover. Do women habitually wail for their demon lovers beneath a waning moon? Is that a thing? When they do, does that increase or maybe decrease the holiness of a place? Regardless, it's a great image. There's a sort of mad, uncivilized romance to this now, which probably connects to the popular image of Kublai Khan at the time. This mystical barbarian concept, right, from the, the dim, mystic East. I wonder if Khan might actually be the demon lover the woman is wailing for, since this is his pleasure dome, after all. Uh, do I have to point out that there is a symbolic image here of a woman, of the land itself as a woman, depicted in several ways? The Pleasure Dome, the River Alf running sinuously through fertile lands before it disappears in deep caverns, the deep romantic chasm here. Without going any further into that, I do like the idea that it is the land itself then wailing for her demon lover, the Khan. 
Moving on. And from this chasm with ceaseless turmoil seething, as if this earth in fast thick pants were breathing, a mighty fountain momently was forced, amid whose swift half-intermitted burst huge fragments vaulted like rebounding hail, or chaffy grain beneath a thresher's flail. And mid these dancing rocks at once and ever it flung up momently the sacred river. Again, just beautiful writing, the seething to the breathing and the fast, thick pants has this really quick rhythm to it, um, which is repeated then, this kind of rhythm of huge fragments vaulted like rebounding hail that feels to me like it's these these quick bouncing sounds that sound like what he's describing. And then you have alternately the sacred river and the mighty fountain that sort of has a longer, slower feel to it of this, of this, this river. Um, this water flowing out. Anyway, the land is still coming to life here. It's still alive, breathing with fast, thick pants. I can see that in a few ways. It sounds maybe like the land is in labor, giving birth, which maybe ties back to the pleasure dome. If the dome is supposed to be the roundness of uh, like a woman's belly, a uterus of a pregnant woman. Again, encapsulating the pleasure, the, the seed of pleasure, right? Or else, maybe the land is the demon lover now. Maybe the land is the demon rather than the, the, the woman crying for the land, crying for the demon lover. That's another interesting possibility, and it's a reversal of what I've been imagining, where maybe the woman is wailing for the land itself. In any case, there is a sense now of both strength and effort, and the result is the origin of the sacred river, erupting in a fountain so mighty it moves stones, making them dance. This is another reversal of expectation. Kind of like the land being tied in, captured, encapsulated, but also not, also bursting free. Here we have a river shooting rocks around instead of the river bending around the rocks. So instead of sort of a passive river, you have this geyser, this strong fountain blasting earth out of its way chucking them around like grains of corn, right? Like it's nothing. These large, these stones just bursting everywhere. Uh, there's another image of abundance and fertility here with the grain being threshed about as a metaphor for the rocks in the river. I think we have to question what exactly is the grain? What is the chaff? And what's the thresher's flail? Is the river the grain, the good stuff that you're trying to get out? I mean, it's water. It's the stuff of life. So the rocks being flung about like rebounding hail, is that the chaff? Is that what's being cast out of the water? The earth is the refuse being cast off the water, and the water is the stuff of life? I kind of like that. But what's the thresher's flail then striking that grain river and breaking it out of the rock chaff? What's the impetus for this fountain bursting forth? Is it the power of life, the sheer fecundity of the land itself that can't be contained? Is the attempt to contain it like a dam holding back the water until the pressure becomes too great? Is it then Khan? Is, is the Khan in trying to control the land? Is he the reason why the, the, the fountain burst forth with so much strength? Is he necessary then? Is his holding back the land, trying to contain the land, uh, what creates the, the necessary pressure for the water to burst forth so it is acting like the thresher's flail, bursting the water grain out of the, out of the chaff. Anyway, I like that again because it contrasts against the first stanza where the Khan is trying to contain and surround the beautiful land itself and the river Alf as well. This bursting forth then has an element of denial, of refutation, where the land is telling the arrogant king, no, you cannot contain me. Once again, there is sexual imagery here. Maybe the other side, the feminine land is this, well, this forcefully bursting fountain spewing forth fertile grain in intermittent bursts from the seething turmoil of the thickly panting land. Okay, that, that's enough of that. <clears throat> Five miles meandering with a mazy motion through wooden dale, the sacred river ran, then reached the caverns measureless to man and sank in tumult to a lifeless ocean. And mid this tumult, Kubla heard from far ancestral voices prophesying war. 
The shadow of the dome of pleasure floated midway on the waves, where was heard the mingled measure from the fountain and the caves. It was a miracle of rare device, a sunny pleasure dome with caves of ice. That's the end of the second stanza. So, after bursting forth from the ground, the sacred river meanders along, almost confused, mazy, right? It's a great line, though, with beautiful alliteration creating this sort of humming river, which feels to me almost like it's conscious and humming to itself as it roams through the land. <laughs> Five miles meandering with a mazy motion. I like that. But then, why does it end in darkness and death in these caves, in these, in these, these measureless cavern, caverns? It ends with a tumult, so it's not going gently into that good night. It's sinking to a lifeless ocean. But sinking does have a feeling of just relaxing into nothingness, just like the lifeless ocean is just flat and dead and empty. Why? Why is the river so bursting forth with life, but the ocean has none of it? This then refutes my idea that the water is the stuff of life, because here it is lifeless water. Is this just the end of the cycle, though? Is that the return to the larger natural world, which absorbs the individual life and disperses it into the masses, into the sort of greater cosmos. That seems like a lot to read in here, just these lines from the, the bursting fountain to this lifeless ocean. But maybe. There is an association here between this lifeless ocean, these measureless caverns, and war and conquest, because Kubla hears ancestral voices prophesying war from the tumult of the sacred river falling into the lifeless ocean. So if this is something like the death of individuality, like the life of the fountain being killed as it falls into the great ocean, that could even be a critique of the Khan, who strives to be remembered in glory through his conquest, as represented by his attempt to build a wall around and a dome over this perfect, beautiful land, this unconquerable river, but who eventually falls into the anonymous, lifeless ocean of darkness, hearing his call to glory in that final splash. So it's like his attempt to make himself something greater, to capture something that can't be captured, like a king attempting to conquer lands and free peoples, is what actually draws all the life from his initial, you know, burst of whatever you want to call it, creative energy or aggressive energy or his desire to conquer his own individual desires, then destroys itself and he ends up just falling into the lifeless ocean. Um, there's also a feeling of the urge to conquer, to seek glory, to control the land is is never ending. It's, you know, he hears it in the very water falling into the ocean. And um, especially if that's supposed to represent the the failure and the destruction of individuality, of, you know, an individual creative genius of a forceful person, because the Khan is certainly a forceful person, especially if we go back to Genghis. But... He destroys himself in trying to then spread that and to conquer others because the act of conquering takes away the creative force of the people he's conquering. Um, and so there's this, you know, there's this contradiction, just like the living water, the powerful water just sinking into the sea. Like it's, it's you know, he's, he's deadening himself by deadening others by conquest. But in the final sound of that death, he keeps hearing a call to war. It's like his attempt to conquer is what destroys him and that destruction of self then makes him want to conquer more because he recognizes that his glory is fleeting, that it's it's now, you know, once he conquers a land, then there's no more glory because there's no more war and so he has to go out and conquer more and it's this never-ending cycle of just destruction and conquering and war. So again, reading a lot into it, but there is this really interesting contrast in this river, in this sacred river, again, this river that is made sacred, as sacred as any place haunted by a woman calling for a demon lover, which is about as unsacred a thing as I can imagine if you're talking from a Christian perspective, which Coleridge is, although Khan is not. Anyway, so yeah, there's all of this, right? There's all of this stuff in this, in this imagery. Um, so there is some glory here in the Pleasure Dome, which is now given some kind of middle ground in this last couple of lines, which are um, 
The shadow of the dome of pleasure floated midway on the waves, where was heard the mingled measure from the fountain in the caves. It was a miracle of rare device, a sunny pleasure dome with caves of ice. So, middle ground. Its shadow is floating halfway on the waves of that ocean, which is maybe not so great, because it's a shadow, and it's only halfway on the waves, and the ocean is lifeless. But also, the dome itself is a real enough, solid enough thing to cast a shadow, even in this ocean that, as far as we heard, was caverns of darkness and death and lifelessness. So, the dome stands above that, and it's given a positivity with the sunny pleasure dome. And also, it talks about mingling the two extremes, the sunny pleasure dome, the caverns of ice, the life of the river, the death of the ocean, into a harmony, combining both the fountain and the caves, the bursting forth and the great absorbing, the yin and the yang. And yes, maybe the male and the female. This combination of two ends is praised here in this last couplet. It is a miracle of rare device, both sunny pleasure and caverns of ice. So that harmony between contrast, the mingling of these two extremes, may be the best way to understand this poem thematically. You've got the natural beauty and the attempt to capture and encapsulate it, which is both arrogant and also appreciative, because after all, the Khan recognizes the beauty of the land where he decides to build his pleasure dome. If it wasn't beautiful, he wouldn't try to conquer it. That's, I don't want to get too much into weird, like, victim-blaming, but there is an element of appreciation there. That's the place that he chooses to try to conquer, to try to control, to own. So you've got a river that bursts forth forcefully, but then it meanders mazily, and then it subsides but it subsides in a tumult, in a great chaotic crashing noise. Going from sunny pleasure dome to icy waves and darkness. And maybe all of that suits the image of the Khan, the barbarian lord or lords who historically brought civilization to the people they conquered. Uh, Genghis Khan brought written language to many of the Mongol tribes, for one thing who, like Alexander the Great, were able to build enormous, coherent empires because they did not punish and isolate the people they defeated, but welcomed and absorbed their cultures into the larger civilization, and yet who did this through untold bloody slaughter and destruction. There's a story I remember hearing in college about the Mongols, how Genghis Khan would have hunts, great hunts, in which he would line all of his horsemen up in an enormous circle, miles across, all facing inward. And then at a signal, all of them would ride in towards the center, driving every living thing, human and animal, inside the circle towards the center where everything would be killed in one enormous bloodbath. Maybe that's an apocryphal story. I don't know enough about history. But it seems to fit pretty well for me with this image of the Khan trying to wall in the sacred river and the beautiful gardens and maybe by that process of trying to wall them in and contain them, destroying them. So the last stanza then gets a little bit weirder. A damsel with a dulcimer in a vision once I saw. It was an Abyssinian maid, and on her dulcimer she played, singing of Mount Abara. So we have this sudden switch, signal in a few ways. First of all, the rhythm changes. We've been in... Uh, Tetrameter, where there's four accented beats in each, in each line, pretty much. And now it's two. They're half as long. A damsel with a dulcimer in a vision once I saw. It was an Abyssinian maid. And on her dulcimer she played, singing of Mount Abara. But it's also, that's only five lines. So it's not, these can't be, these aren't just half lines continuing on the rhythm from the previous section. It's a different rhythm. And also, <clears throat> we have the arrival of I, the speaker, in a vision once I saw. And then the appearance also of visions. What has been a description of, at least theoretically, a real thing, of this real place, this real person building this real pleasure dome, this real land. Now we have visions. A vision of a maid, a damsel. And that's soft and lovely, right? The maid, the damsel. She has a dulcimer. Why is she Abyssinian? Which is, Abyssinian is the classical name for the kingdom of Ethiopia. So we've moved now from Asia to Africa. 
don't know. Is this the embodiment of the feminine land we've been hearing about? Is it the word abyss inside Abyssinian? Is she the deep romantic chasm? Singing of the mountain, which is not a real mountain, but the name is really close to a real mountain, which Coleridge actually named in a different manuscript version of this poem, Mount Amara, which is a mountain in Ethiopia, where the king kept his royal treasury and his royal prison as well. It's mentioned in Milton's Paradise Lost and also in the book Coleridge reading before he had his dream, Purchase's Progress, that turned the, 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 which turned into this poem. So surely he saw the name Mount Amara, why then did he change it to Mount Abora? It's closer in sound to Abyssinian, and he's been doing a number of, you know, alliterations and assonance consonants and rhymes and things to make the line, the, the rhyme, sorry, the sounds all hold together better. Maybe that's enough reason? I mean, I don't know how many people would actually know the reference either way or care if it was the real mountain or this imagined one, since this is an imagined situation. It's a vision within, you know, an imagined poem. Maybe he didn't want to make the loaded allusion to the historical literary mountain, this actual place that's mentioned in these places. Maybe it goes too far away from the Khan, who is supposed to be the focus of the poem after all. And the Abyssinian maid singing in the vision doesn't have to take us to the other side of the world, to the nation where she was born. He could just be naming her while she sings about the Khan and keeps us there around Xanadu. But if she's singing about a mountain in that nation of Abyssinia, of Ethiopia, maybe that loses the thread of the Khan. Anyway, the point of this vision is the singing, the dulce melos, the soft melody of the song. Because then he goes on to say, Could I revive within me her symphony and song to such a deep delight twould win me that with music loud and long I would build that dome in air, that sunny dome, those caves of ice. I like this. If he could recapture her song, again, encapsulate, possess, control this natural beauty that is associated with the feminine, then he could create a song to capture the images of his poem here, with its contrast that must be brought together into a harmony of opposites, a sunny dome, dark caverns of ice. It's interesting here that he is maybe stepping out of his poem, of the original poem about Xanadu and the Pleasure Dome that Kublai Khan decreed. Now he's talking about his vision and he can't recapture it, right? So we have to question whether this is actually part of his original vision of this poem, in which case it's, it's pretty prophetic that he cannot remember the melody. Or if this is then him reflecting after he got porlocked what he lost and that's the the addition of the 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 vision of the song played by this abyssinian maid um that maybe makes more sense if this is you know after he lost the original vision of the original poem this is then added to it he says in his description of the thing that all of it was lost except for a few images and a few last lines and so maybe these are these last few lines that are the only thing that's left afterwards spat up by his subconscious because it lost the main thread about Kublai Khan. Anyway, but within this, because again, we're still imagining that this is the poem that the author wanted to create. And so whether this was written before or after he lost the original vision, it's still part of the poem that he wanted to create to have this image and these ideas. Um, and he is running along the same themes that I've been talking about, about contrasts about extremes brought together the contrasts in this part are layers deep he is building something permanent and tangible the the he would build that dome in the air but he's building it with music which is something ephemeral and intangible he gives it some force with music loud and long but still he's talking about a dome that he will build in the air which is again intangible he is recreating something he imagined in the first place, so not a real thing, using a music he can't actually remember from a vision he had, which is something created and imagined, but without substance. Unless visions are substance granted to someone from, you know, a greater power from a higher power in some way, which is the idea of a vision. So 
is, is that visions are given. You don't just have visions, they're given to you. So maybe there's some more substance there. And then he's going to use that to build visual images out of sound, which is a contradiction, but also that's what a poem really is. Then he says, And all who heard should see them there, and all should cry, Beware, beware. His flashing eyes, his floating hair, weave a circle round him thrice, and close your eyes with holy dread, for he on honeydew hath fed and drunk the milk of paradise. Here's the last mystery Coleridge gives us. Who is he in these lines? Who is he with the fla his flashing eyes, his floating hair? We weave a circle around him thrice. This has a feeling of a magic spell, a warding. And then we should close our eyes with holy dread? Why? Is he going to enchant us? Ooh, is this the demon lover? Who hath fed on honeydew in the milk of paradise, the proverbial milk and honey of the promised land? Is his hair floating because he is in the river? Is he the river Alf itself, the sacred fountain? The flashing eyes might connect to both the sun gleaming off the pleasure dome and also the intermittent bursting forth of the fountain from the land. As, you know, images of flashing and intermittent bursts of light. But then we're to close our eyes with holy dread. Is he too beautiful to look at, too glorious? Is this Lucifer, the most beautiful of all the angels? Is that the demon lover? Or is it an entirely different he? Is it Coleridge, the speaker? Because this is, he's talking about his vision and building this sunny pleasure dome. And then others, the they that he refers to, are the ones who have to cry, beware, beware. Is he the one, is the speaker then the one who is weaving this magical spell with his music? Is that who we must look away from? Because there's a you in here as well. So there's they and there's he and there's you in these last lines. So you must look away afraid of his divine madness warned by they. His mystical spark of vision and poetry. Coleridge could be said to have eaten the milk and honey if we connect that to the lotus, the magical herb that grants visions of paradise and is associated with addictive narcotics in the island of the lotus eaters from Homer, where the lotus eaters eat the lotus and dream constantly, forever, and are trapped forever in their dreams. So maybe that associates then to the opium that created this vision before us. Which is it? I don't know. Coleridge never finished the poem. Maybe he wanted to leave it ambiguous, unknown, and unknowable. Maybe writing about the attempts of man to capture and control the savage beauty of nature made Coleridge realize it could never really be done. Maybe this vision was the perfect natural beauty just burst forth like the fountain, created whole without his, uh, intermediate, his, intermediate, his acting as an intermediary, without his interpretation, put into his mind in a perfect vision of beauty. And if he tries to capture it, he will kill it. He will make it fall into the lifeless caverns. I like the idea that the vision created, which is in the first two stanzas and then interrupted when he wrote it down and then looked at what he wrote again, birth whole from his subconscious. And there's kind of an Athena coming out of the head of Zeus here, but I don't want to go too classical with that. That's my illusion. He doesn't mention any of that stuff. Uh, but if it's, you know, if, it, if it's birthed perfectly from his mind and then after he writes it down and after he comes out of this vision interrupted by the, the man from Porlock on Business, he looks at it and says, damn, I, I can't do this. I can't. If I try to do this, I'll destroy what I've created. So he stopped. Maybe in that's what maybe the attempt itself to create this, to capture this, is what sends the mighty meandering holy river to its doom in the lifeless ocean in the depths of the measureless caverns beneath the dome. Trying to wall it in is what destroys it. 
right? Maybe when he realized that is exactly when he stopped trying to recreate this vision, this perfect poem that will never exist anywhere but in the mind of the poet, leaving us only with a glimpse of how beautiful it could be in the first 36 lines. And then he refers to how beautiful it is with a final warning. Maybe that's, again, the demon lover. And that could be so many things. There's so many layers here. It could be the Khan trying to capture the beauty of the land in order to own it and possess it, and thereby destroying it, which again could be Coleridge trying to capture and possess the beauty of the land of the poem, of the vision, and if he does so, he will destroy it. Uh, and could be also Lucifer, the demon, trying to own, trying to possess with his sin of pride, and destroying by that attempt to possess that arrogance. And by leaving it here, he leaves all three of these things intertwined, but he creates humility for himself, at least space for humility for himself. He can't have full humility, perfect humility, because he did write this down. He did publish it. So he's he's got pride, of course, and he is trying to create something in these first lines that even if he realized he shouldn't maybe have done it, if this narrative that I'm creating is correct, he still did it this far, right? He didn't go all the way, but he still started building the wall. He still tried to capture the sacred river of this inspiration, of this natural beauty, of this vision. So he's imperfect, but he did step away from it. He did stop. He left it as a fragment. So maybe that's a recognition uh, of the doomed attempt and the destructive attempt of conquering natural beauty by putting it into words, by capturing it in a poem, by walling it in, uh, in order to reflect on his glory as the conqueror, as the creator, as the, the visionary who had the vision and then spelled it out in words. It's as good an explanation as any. And that is as good a place to end this endless tale. But I have to share this one final thought. The attempt to see, to observe, to experience nature through the senses, to turn natural forces and objects into objects of aesthetic pleasure, is the same attempt to encapsulate and contain and restrain and limit those natural objects which Kublai Khan tries to do in this poem. Just seeing them is that, trying to hold them in one's field of vision, to set them there and remember them as they were seen in that one moment of time, as if natural processes and objects weren't always constantly in motion and in flux. That that's the life of them, that motion and flux. And maybe that very attempt to capture the world where we live is as arrogant as the Khan and his stately pleasure dome built atop the natural world. Maybe that pleasure dome casting its shadow over the waves is, in fact, an eye. A flashing eye that would best be closed with holy dread. Safer that way. More humble. Thanks for listening. And if you have any comments or concerns, please don't hesitate to contact me. Go to theodenhumphrey.com and click on the contact page. Thanks.